Roy is his father, not his father-in-law. Where's Roy at? Yeah, sorry about that. I can't, I have a tough time keeping names straight, let alone all the genders down through the line here. I did a wedding one time where, you know, one of my dangers in weddings is the fact that there's many times there's multiple mothers involved and multiple fathers involved. You want to get in a cat fight in a wedding, you just forget who is the real mother. <laughs> you boy, I tell you what. So in, wherever there's weddings, more than one, four or five mothers, I always wear goggles so I can't get my eyes scratched out. But anyway, <clears throat> sorry about that. If you have your Bibles this morning, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you're visiting this morning, I always try to give a little idea where we're at. I think one of the hardest things to go into a church maybe as a visitor and when they're in the middle of a series that you're not sure where it's all coming from or what our purpose is because we just jump into the middle of something. Uh, we have been coming through the Bible uh, and we've been kind of laying out each book of the Bible from an aspect of how Christ is portrayed in each book. The Bible is such an amazing book that when God put it together, he put it together around his son. You know, having a relationship with Christ, uh, one of the components of that is to understand all of the attributes of Christ and then to try to incorporate him in our lives. Nothing that I know of does that better than just taking a, a brief study of each book of the Bible. You don't have to get really down into it deep, but just see how Christ is portrayed in every book of the Bible, in the book of 1 Corinthians. So we have been working our way through. We're in 1 Corinthians. And we know now that in the book of 1 Corinthians, the Lord Jesus Christ is portrayed as Christ our Lord. We also know that the church at Corinth is a church that, we talked about this, has got a lot of spiritual issues. They, they mirror uh, the church today. They're just about messed up on about everything that they could hope to get messed up on. We've talked and paralleled that to the churches today, uh, we know we're in the Laodicean church period, and we know that churches today uh, really have lost a lot of the definitions that the Bible once uh, puts out that we need to have to really understand how to function. And so we've been coming through these books, and some of these books we've been majoring on more important things necessarily than others, uh, spending a little bit more time. But when I got into 1 Corinthians, I told you that I want to spend a little more time here. When we get finished with all of the books of the Bible and we're just working our way through the New Testament, we want to come back and take an in-depth study of the book of 2 Corinthians for where our church is at and what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, we want to really be able to uh, have you understand some of the basic things about uh, the ministry. And I don't know of a better book than the book of 2 Corinthians that really, I call it the handbook of ministry in the Bible. And I think the thing that makes it so important is the great contrast between the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, they're messed up on just about everything. In fact, we're studying chapter 7 in depth here because here they're messed up on the aspect of marriage. But they're messed up on everything. And chapter by chapter, sometimes in multiple cases, he deals with them on issues that they're messed up on. Someplace along the line, the church at Corinth says, hey, look, we want to get our act together. We want to start doing what needs to be done. So then he writes them 2 Corinthians. And where the great contrast is where 1 Corinthians really lays out all the things that are wrong and he tries to get them straightened out. Once they want to get straightened out, he writes them 2 Corinthians 
which really forms for us in the Bible the handbook of ministry because now, just like chapter by chapter he corrected them, now chapter by chapter he's showing them how to take what they already have and how to minister to others. And it formed for us the greatest book. And right now where we're at, where many of you are growing to the point in the Bible, where many of you are coming to the place in your life that you know, you're reaching out to people and God is putting you in places where you really have a, an impact, where you, can, you have now the ability to change somebody's life. I told you a couple of weeks ago about Roy and Rob, how that they're out traveling all the time. And we put some little packets together. Uh, that, you know, that when they witness the people, I've gotten phone calls from people that they have talked to. And, uh, you know, so we put some little packets together, and he's already told me this morning that he passed all those out and needs some more. So that's what it's all about. And, you know, where you work today, where you, your neighborhood, I think one of the greatest avenues that some of you ladies have that probably you don't even recognize is in your own public school. If you've got little kids that are in school someplace and you get involved with the, uh, with the things that go on in that school, you're a magnet for women who have problems. And, you know, it's an incredible opportunity. I remember just a couple of months ago or maybe a month ago that, uh, you know, where my grandkids go to school, they had a carnival night. And, you know, four or five of you guys went up and, you know, you had the time of your life. You got to run the food table and you just had fun. I mean, it was a fun time. And you don't know what an impact you made on the people in that school. It was the talk of the school. I mean, the lady said, we can't even get volunteers, and yet here's the thing where, you know, that people from your school, from your church come out, and it was, a, it was one of the big, to me it was nothing. To me it was, we're just having, a, you guys were having a fun time. I went out, next year I'm going to come and work with you. I didn't even think about it. But after the fact I saw it, it was an impact in their lives. We, I asked you to go over and cut down Crystal's tree over there uh, last week. And, uh, you know, uh, she had, a, it was a, was a Memorial Day weekend, wasn't it? You guys went over there? And she had a, I thought it was a little tree. I guess it was a sequoia. I mean, it was a, it was a big tree, man. That's a big tree. And it fell and blocked her front door. I don't know if it blocked her front door, but it really got you guys over there thinking that they were trapped going out and out, in and out the window. But afterwards, the neighbors were amazed at the, how, who came over and did that on Memorial Day weekend. And she proudly, this was people from my church. They couldn't believe that. And she's witnessing to them and telling them about, you know, come to our church, you got to try it out, it's a great place and all those things. And she's only been coming herself for about a month and a half, maybe two months. There's all kinds of opportunities around us 24 hours, seven days a week. We fail to see them because we're not dialed into it. And, you know, one of the things that we're talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is the aspect where he starts to talk about marriage and divorce and in the issue of remarriage. And I told you in our introductory message that I don't know of a worse problem in America today. And I don't know of a worse problem that has broken up so many homes and, and so many caused so many heartaches. And, you know, and the churches have failed in meeting this need just like they failed in meeting every other need. The church today should be a Red Cross center. It should not be a church that is judgmental in any way, shape, or form about a person's, where they come from. 
It needs to be like a red cross. It doesn't take sides. It just doles out medicine. And our medicine is the Word of God. And, you know, it ought to be a relief place where people can, can come that's got problems and issues. And if they want to do what's right, then they find a haven to be able to get what they need to get their lives back on track. I don't know what's so hard about that concept. And it's, that's what this church has to be. And that's what, but it will only be that way if the people in the church are that way. And so, you know, I'm thankful today for, for so many of you, most of you, who really, really, really take what you have and do something with it. So we've been coming through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we've been learning this because for the very fact that many of you find yourself at work in your neighborhood with your friends who have issues, that you can help them because that's the goal. And uh, we want to take the stigma off of, of, of so many people that so many of God's people have put on them. Doesn't mean we don't deal with it. Doesn't mean there's not issues we don't have to deal with biblically, but it means that your life is not over. So I'm going to begin reading again today, and we're going to pick it up basically where we, uh, the last two points we stopped last week, so we have some continuity to it, and you now have been following it through. So if you're a visitor today, you understand now why we're doing what we're doing and the way we're doing it, because it gives you a better understanding. So we'll pick it up in verse 10 where it says, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. But if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Let not the husband put away his wife. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath a husband that believeth not, if she be pleased to dwell with her, let her her not uh, leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We ask you now to meet with us. Give us out of here. Help us to glean the great principles that you have in here. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, before we start taking this passage apart and looking at all these, and there's a lot of things you're going to learn today, a lot of things that will help you personally and a lot of things that will help you when you're dealing with other people. But I want to draw your attention to verse 15 and the last thing that he says there after the colon. He says, but God hath called us to peace. Now, that's the single statement that says everything about God. If you're here this morning and you're an unsaved man, you're an unsaved woman, and you've never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. The Bible says that you're alienated from God. The Bible says that, in essence, you're God's enemy because of the fact that we are sinners and God is holy. But God doesn't want it to stay that way. So God made a way that you could be at peace with God. You know, there's two concepts of peace in the Bible. Uh, There's the peace of God, and then there's the peace with God. Most people don't even know that. When you're unsaved and you get saved, you make peace with God. When you get saved and after you're saved, you have peace, you have the peace of God. See how it works? Now, most people look at those two things and don't think there's any difference in it at all. That's the difference in knowing how to read the Bible and not knowing how to read the Bible. 
And when the day you got saved, you made peace with God. You know what that means? That means that God reconciled his differences with you through his death of his son on Calvary's cross. When you accepted Christ as your own personal Savior, God took his death on the cross and he applied it to your sin debt. And from that point on, you have made your peace with God. From that point on, now, as you grow and learn, you have the peace of God, see? But you made peace with God. Why? Because God hath called us to peace. God wants to reconcile every man and woman. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God died for everybody. And that verse, that, that last part of that verse says it all to me. It simply says that God hath called us to peace. We can take that one step further. If you're here this morning and you're a saved person and you're out of fellowship with God, or you're in a situation like a bad marriage, a bad relationship, or just in a bad state, whatever the case, God wants to bring peace into your heart, into your life. People get into problems for two basic reasons. This was your psychology 101 class. You can drop a check for $100 on, pat, on the way out to the door and you can get your degree when you go up the steps. This is why people have problems. It's very simple. Psychologists wants to make it very complicated. Of course, they're getting $200 an hour. Your therapist wants to extend it out as long as you can or at least till your insurance benefits run out and then you're cured, see? But people have problems. It's a very basic format. If a person is unsaved, they have problems in their life because you were created by God. And God created you to have fellowship with you. And your continuance to live your life and not recognize what Christ did for you on the cross and to live your life the way you want and go after the things of the world is going to build up in your life. Everything that is bad for you and for me is a matter of build up. Do you know that? You know why your dentist pulls your teeth? Because you didn't brush them and gunky stuff build up in your mouth. You know why you're going to die before you're supposed to die? Because you got build up of cholesterol in your blood, clogs your veins, clogs your whatever, and you, your pipes, <laughs> and you can't. It, it, everything in life that builds up in our life is not good. Somebody says, oh, I know one thing that's good, it builds up. What's that? Money in the bank. Really? Really? You know what? If you and I had a million dollars today, you know what probably happened? We'd probably be out of fellowship by the end of the week. Now, I'm go- I, I, I don't preach that you should buy lottery tickets, but I will accept the tithe if you do win it. I mean, that's a, that would be unchristian. I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm, a, I'm a fair man, but I'm not stupid, okay? I mean, uh, praise illusion, however that thing goes. <laughs> but your life and my life needs to be at peace. And the things of the world don't bring peace. They never have. So an unsaved man, an unsaved woman, they grow up in high school, they get into drinking and smoking and drugs. And why do they do that? Because somebody told them this will make you really complete. You're not a real man or a real woman if you don't do it like this and do this and do that. So the peer pressure, everybody goes along with the crowd. And bottom line is, we think this is what's going to satisfy us. But the problem is, 
You know, the one beer didn't satisfy you, so you had to have more, and then you wind up an alcoholic. The one cigarette give you a buzz for a minute, but then you didn't, and then you start smoking four packs a day, and then it doesn't do for you more, so you go to marijuana, and then you go to something stronger, and it's always a quest for something that is going to... Don't you know that you have a desire inside of you that you want to feed and satisfy? The problem is an unsaved man or woman satisfies it with the wrong things or tries to, the issue with that is that'll never satisfy. It builds up. And so you come to the place where, you know, we got this thing now called midlife crisis. Had it for years. I've already passed mine. It wasn't worth the time. You know what midlife crisis is? Midlife crisis in the psychology world is a thing where you, a man will get to the point in his life where he's midlife and he starts to feel like uh, he's no longer a, a, you know, young anymore. He's, not, he's losing his edge and he, he's not real old. He's caught in that limbo between the two. So he, he tries to regain his youth by doing really stupid things. Now, that's not the case. The case is that God made you by his design and he designed you to be fulfilled with his plan. And you got hell to look for at the end. You may not know that, but your soul knows that. Your flesh knows that. That's why it resists everything that God wants to give you, including this message this morning. So you fight all of your life to do your own thing, and you, you get to the point where you're midlife. You have nothing now that satisfies. All of the things that you thought and were told is really going to make you happy have not made you happy. You've worked your rear end off to get this, get that car, get this big house, get all this stuff. That hasn't made you happy. You know, when you get depressed, the first thing we think, well, if I go out and buy something, I'll feel better. And that's true. You feel better for a while. And then when it's old, you wash it two or three times. Oh, you put it on, it doesn't fit quite the same way because you puffed up a few pounds, you know. And then what happens? You're depressed again. There's got to be more things in life that give you that peace than just the things of life, and that's why people go through it. Now, for a saved man, same thing. If you're saved, God saved you for a purpose. This is what we're going to get to here. If you're saved this morning, God saved you for a purpose. When you don't fulfill that, then the Bible says you grieve the Holy Spirit of God who lives inside you, and it has a physiological effect on you. I would dare some to say that, and this is not a criticism or it's not a condemnation. I'm here to help you. He's called us to peace. But I would dare say this morning that if you're saved this morning and you're not on top of the world and you're not happy and you don't have the joy, 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 joy down in your life and you are truly saved, I'd say that there's something wrong in the process of God fulfilling you. I don't know of anybody in all of the world and all of the Bible that went through more bad things than the Apostle Paul. He never had a midlife crisis. I don't ever know where he was depressed. He looked at every downturn in life that met him, even his death, the biblical way because he was focused on what God wanted him to do. That's the key. If you're saved this morning and you're in a mess, you've got problems in your life, no matter what it may be. We're talking about marital things here, but I'm talking about whatever it may be. The key, the key, the only key is to get that fulfillment that brings that peace. If you're an unsaved man or woman, get saved. Make peace with God. If you're already saved, get the peace of God. It passes all understanding and it keeps your hearts and minds. So I want to start this morning with that thought. God hath called us to peace. And we're going to weave that in in everything we talk about today because that's really the bottom line 
in marital breakups, marital relationships. God does not want a war. God was called us to peace. So as a church, that's our goal. My goal is to reconcile every issue with every problem that everybody has. The Bible can do that. It's like somebody said one time, there's nothing really wrong with the world. It's the people that's in it. That's why the more you're around people, the better I like dogs. I mean, that, it's, just, it's just the way that it is. But you're going to realize that, that there's some things that, that, that you have to do because God, whatever situation you're in, God has called us to peace. The bottom line of the church is to reconcile, to get two opposing parties together through the Word of God. And the Word of God can do that. We've seen enough now and talked enough now that we know that the reason why we can't do that is because people won't do what's right. Okay, so far. So far, we have defined the major issues that help us better put all this chapter together. We now know that God has established three institutions, and we've defined those, marriage, civil government, and the church. We now know and understand that the, the standard operational procedure of most Baptist churches are totally out of line with the Word of God because when they come to divorce and remarry, they'll go back to the Old Testament in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 19, Leviticus chapter 24, and, and uh, we now know that, uh, that that's not where the church gets its instructions from. We know it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which was written by Paul, the apostle to the church for church instruction, just like everything else. Last week, we now defined what fornication is and what adultery is. People always want to throw those terms around and use them interchangeably, but they don't really understand what they mean. They're not the same. They're connected together, but now we know the difference. Fornication has to do with your physical body. Adultery has to do with your attitude of heart. And we saw how key the attitude of heart was. Uh, last week, we also defined, now we got down into the nitty-gritty, and now we know what marriage is. Marriage, by God, uh, in viewpoint, is flesh joining flesh. We also defined what divorce was in the Bible, and that's flesh leaving flesh. How, how that the attitude of heart will drive what your flesh does. Somebody said years and years ago, and this brings up another great process in dealing with people, that uh, the attitude of heart is everything. There's a thing in the Bible, that, a concept in the Bible called attitude and action. And uh, our actions are what we do. Our attitude is what we put in our heart. Somebody said years and years ago, I can't remember who it was, but it was a true statement that if you think about something long enough, you'll do it. And that is so true. Because that is the process of attitude and action. You think about and lust after a woman all the time, committing adultery in your heart, you'll do it in the flesh. The two are connected. And it's a thing where whatever our attitude is that we dwell on, it produces the action. That's why the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Why? You get the right attitude of God's Word, you produce the right actions of God's Word. See how simple it is? I mean, this is not hard. Well, it's not hard to say. It's hard to do. But anyway, that's what you got. And basically, if you think about it long enough, you'll do it. Attitude to heart is key. Now we see in getting all this stuff together, we now see we got a good foundation and understanding through these definitions. It helps us uh, begin to lay down the rules. And I told you that there's 20 rules in this chapter about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We've got four down so far. We now know that rule number one, that in the Old Testament, there were grounds for divorce. Moses gave them for the hardness of their people's hearts. But in the New Testament, there are no grounds for divorce. But now we also know that there may be no biblical grounds, but there are reasons why people get divorced. 
We'll get into that again in a minute. We saw our second rule was that Paul said that it's, it's, it's a gift God gives some people, the gift of celibacy, to be able to stay single. We talked about that. <clears throat> Last week, we got to the third and the fourth rule. The third one was that the saved person is never to depart. And the fourth rule was the concept of the biblical separation. We never really got into those last two in depth. We're going to do that today, but you do have them on your paper. And now, basically, with all the definitions that we have, we've come down now, now, and this is why I've taken so much time, because without the real Bible definitions, this chapter goes nowhere. And you have to be able to, be able to define things when you get into this chapter and you've got to have the tools to do it. So now we have that, and we can move on here and begin to knock some of these rules out, and now you'll have a, a place to put them, a context to put them in based on what we've already defined. Now, again, my overall goal for this is for you who are sitting here today to learn this material that you might be able to help other people. But, I, but in learning this material, you need to know two things. I follow a very simple rule. Well, I say I, I try to follow a very simple rule in everything I do. And to me, it's one of the most important things that anybody can do. We've talked about the, a lot about the prepared sinner and the prepared servant at Acts chapter 8. How that while you're sitting here today preparing your heart to do what God wants you to do, God's got some sinner out here that's preparing his heart. He wants to match the two of you up together. Acts chapter 8, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuchs are our example of that. And so, uh, you know, uh, I, we, we talk a lot about that, learning how to help others in our own church. There'll be people that come in that are hurting, uh, our coworkers, people that, we, we, uh, that you work with, people uh, that uh, you bring to softball. Uh, not everybody has issues. Some of them are just great people that like to come play softball, but some of them have issues. Our Memorial Day picnic, one of the reasons, it's, I have a method to everything I do. You know, when you have everybody around that coming in, and we had more people at this picnic last year, this last week, than we've ever had before. I almost ran out of ribs. I was sweating it toward the end. But one of the things that I do, and I have a reason for everything I do, there is no way that I can get around and, and get everybody that's out there. So my mindset is, let those people come to me. So what do I do? I pass out the ribs. Everybody's got to walk right by me. So I get a chance in doing that, to meet the, all the new people. And, uh, and I know, you know what? I know that if you ever get saved because you came to Memorial Day, it won't be because you got God's gospel in your heart. It'll be because you got God's big rib on your plate before he ever got the gospel in your heart. <laughs> you know, I know the way to everybody is through your stomach. I just know that. And you be, you're laughing about that, but people have an attitude about most churches. And it's a true attitude. They think most churches are stingy, cheap. They, they want everything from everybody, never want to do anything for anybody. You know, I want everything from you, but don't ask nothing from me. That's the idea of most churches, and that's, sadly, that's the way most churches are. You know, you come to a thing, and you charge somebody you know, $6 for a ticket, and you come to a, get a barbecue or come to the thing, and you get a skinny needle weenie-weenie. It looked like it died about six years ago and been on somebody's refrigerator. You know, it's a, it's a psychological thing, but there's just something about, you know, you have, you're in a better it's true of all of us. You can have the worst day of your life and go out and have a really good meal, and suddenly, for whatever reason, life's better. <laughs> I mean, life's better. That's the way we're made. The way it can be down. I mean, a woman has to go buy something. A guy just has to eat something. I mean, that's just the way it is. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know? you know, I go to the Royals game, and, you know, I'll be having a tough day. I could care a little about baseball. But you give me one of those big old Shalaska weenies, those things out there, you know, that they have. Man, I'm in heaven. That's all I can do, man. Put everything on it. You know, 
Give me a forklift to carry it back to where I'm going to eat. No, I'm going to eat it here. But that's the way we are. And there's something about when, you know, that you, if you, and I guess that's why they give you a nice meal before they execute you. <laughs> Never thought about that, but that's probably why. Puts you in a good frame of mind, you know. But anyway, but I'm telling you, people come out there and they, they, they get something to eat and you get to talk with them and, you know, they don't get, they don't get I mean, most of them didn't pay anything. Everybody that paid anything paid a dollar. And, you know, they come in there and they get a big old rib, couple of ribs on there, you know, and you know, you know how it is. I know how it is with me. You go, you know, and it's just true. You go to a restaurant and you and your wife order the same thing. I don't know who does it, but her steak is always bigger than mine. <laughs> it's the way it works. There's somebody follows you around to make sure that your wife gets the bigger steak. And you know she's not going to eat all of that. And then what do you do? Trade me. <laughs> I'm telling you. It's a thing where, so I don't even eat out anymore. I just cook my own food on my own grill, and that way I know how big that steak is because I hand-chose it for it myself. So that's the way it works. <laughs> but there's so, so you expect that. You expect to get short change. So you expect all the ribs. So he's going to put one little rib on there. No, you dump four or five on there, and they're looking at them, and they've got to take two hands. And I love it when you do this. I love it when a big guy comes up, and he, he's a really nice guy. You want to impress him. He's holding his plate with one hand, and you put a, the biggest rib you can find on his plate. And the plates are cheap paper plates. See, and he, he, he almost, he's got to grab it with both hands. See, I won. I won. I won. I won, big guy. I won. You thought you could one-hand me, didn't you, huh? You thought I was going to give you some burnt little hot dog or some little chicken wing that looked like off a scrawny chicken. I beat you. I won. I made you drop whatever you had in the other hand and grab that because you didn't want to drop that salacious big old rib that was on your plate. I got you. I got you. And you will be forever grateful for me. <laughs> That's the way you got to get to people, see? Human nature is a strange thing. It's a strange thing. But it's something that I follow a basic simple rule. And when you want to reach people, it may be people, like I said, that Memorial Day, it may be people that you know. It's, it's wherever God's going to use you. And I find that, you know, the thing that most people don't do is they fail to use the material that God gives them. And in the Bible, it's just a simple little format. And I, I think about it. I, I like breaking things down. Remember, I give you faith, fact, feeling. I give you all those little things. Well, here's another one. And I follow this all the time. Whatever you get, whatever you have with God, whatever you're going to do with it, you want to get somewhere, just follow this little plan. First one's Godward. Second one's inward. The third one's outward. You see, the first thing you've got to be, do to be used of God is you've got you to get your life where it needs to be. You've got to change your attitude. That's how you think. So you put God first in your life. You change your attitude about some things. And that's how you think. Then the second thing, you take what he gives you and you take it inward. You see, the first thing, it changes your attitude. The second thing, when you take it inward, it changes you, what you do, where you go. And then when you get the first one down, that it changes how you think, and you take it inward and it changes what you do, then you let it go outward and through you, let it change others. That's how God does it. But my point is, you got to let the material change you first before you try to change somebody, something else, somebody else. It's like trying to teach the Bible before you really know it. It just leads to problems. The key to teaching people is to thoroughly understand it first yourself and have applied it to yourself and know that it works on you. And that's just the way it has to be. 
Now, let's look here and begin to work through these verses. And, and you remember now, God has called us to peace. Remember, you want to ch- let it change your own life first, then you want it to change you, and then you want it to change others. Now, as we come through here, I, and I said this Thursday night, I'm going to give you the textbook version of this. I'm going to walk you through and show you how the standard format works. In reality, there's many combinations of Bible principles. Somebody asked a question Thursday night about 1 Corinthians chapter, or was Missy asked the question. And she said, how would you explain 1 Corinthians chapter 7 in some of these issues to people that you're dealing with? And I explained to her that that's not the way you want to do it. There may be a time when I'm working with that person for a while that I'll show them that foundational deal, but that's, that's not where to start because they can't grasp that. They can't understand that at this point. And, uh, you know, you got to be able to, I, I, I told her, like, I used the example of salvation. The Bible, in the Bible, there's 12 doctrines of salvation. Doctrine of propitiation, doctrine of, doctrine of glorification, doctrine of, 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 uh, of uh, redemption, all those 12 different doctrines in the Bible. But when I win somebody to Christ, I don't sit down and go through the 12 doctrines. You'd never get them saved that way. What I do is take a little simple Romans road. In other words, I take the Bible principles that are built off the doctrinal foundation, and that's how I win them to Christ. And when you start to deal with people on marriage or divorce or remarriage, you do the same thing. You don't get them into 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and try to grasp all these principles. You find the principles that build on this. In other words, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is your baseline. It's your foundation. You take the principles that come off of that, just like the principles off the 12 doctrines of salvation, and then you work with them along those lines. I remember I, I gave him you the illustration Thursday night, and I, I know it's repertory, but it's, it's good for you to understand it again, and not everybody was there. I, I used the example of a lawyer. If a lawyer has a case that he has to, uh, to uh, defend, and uh, what he's going to do if he's a good lawyer is he's going to sit down, he's going to go to either his own law library or another law library, and he's going to pick out all the books that have to do with all the statutes that have to do with the case that he's going to defend. He may wind up with 20 books on his desk. Some of them will deal with case law. Some of them will deal with state statutes, federal statutes. He has to find everything out about the case that he's about to uh, deal with, and he doesn't retain that all up here, so he's got to go to a library, and if you would look at a shelf of books, you'd see about 9 or 10, 15 or 20 blank spots where books have been taken out. He lays them out, he goes through everything, and then he builds his defense for that case off of that case law, all right? That's what you ought to do with Bible principles. You ought to build a library in your mind, in your Bible, of Bible principles. I lay them out to you all the time. And just like a lawyer, when he sits down and he has to do a case, he has to pull the books off the shelf that have the the principles of law, you ought to, in any given situation, anybody you deal with, you ought to just go to your law library on the Bible and you ought to pull out biblical principles, lay them on the table, and then when you start to talk to that person, that's what you start with. When somebody comes into my home or I meet with somebody and they've got issues in their life, uh, I don't just hee-haw and right off into the sunset and, and, and tell them what I think the best thing they ought to do. While they're telling me their issues and they're telling me their problems, <clears throat> I'm pulling out biblical principles to get ready that when I do speak after they tell me what's going on, 
then I can take them to the Bible and lay out a systematic way to deal with the issue and the problems that they have. Now, this is what the job of the church is. I don't understand why people don't like going to church. I mean, I do, but I don't. You know, one of the greatest TV formats on, on television right now is, is reality TV. And I'm not sure what reality TV is all about, but it has to do with this isn't a staged thing. This is dealing with real life people, and this is reality TV. And yet, you know, people love that. It's one of the most popular kind of pro, you know, program that you're going to find today. And I don't understand why that you would, the world would be so happy about, about uh, reality TV and then be so unhappy about reality church. Because that's what the church does. <clears throat> that's the job of the church. <clears throat> you live in a fairy tale world. You know that? You live in a world that everything out there tries to get you to believe something isn't true. You do. You live in a fantasy world that not much of anything in it has anything to do with reality. And everything that you're told, everything you're led to believe is not based on truth. It's based on, I wish it was true. So that's how people get into problems. That's how marriages get messed up. You got this idea, you know, that because you watch television and you watch all these love stories and you watch these picture things, how man and woman meet, you know, and how they, they find each other and all the struggle, but their love prevails, you know, and all this thing. You get this idea in your mind that you saw a couple of years ago on the field that, that you know, a, a man and woman holding hands, leaping through, the, leaping through the dandelions of a big mountain field, you know, with a wind blowing her hair and free, carefree, laughing, having a great time. This is life. This is what it is. Everybody thinks, wow, I want to have that. I want to find me somebody to leap through the thing there. Yeah, there's a cliff on the other side and they both fell off and got killed. They don't show you that part of the commercial. That's not life. If you want a real picture of life, get you some of them helmets with pugil sticks, body armor with two people slugging it out. That's life. It's a battle all your life. But it's an illusion, see? Church is supposed to bring things back to reality. Church brings things to the point where you realize that, that what you're thinking is the way it is. You come to church, you ought to hear the truth. You ought not to hear somebody tell you how good you are. You already are convinced how good you are. We already get our minds made up all through the week. We, 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 we live in this world that does not exist. We get into relationships that really don't exist. We get all these things going in our mind. We go to a football game, and we watch some guy make a touchdown. We go to this, and we watch some movie, and we see some superhero. And then what do we do? We're driving down the road, and we're that superhero. We fantasize about winning ball games, catching the biggest fish, bagging the biggest deer. It's reality. It's, I mean, it's not reality. That's where we go with our minds, we want, and we think life the same way. We don't realize that life and the reality of life, it just doesn't work out that way. And you better have, you better realize that the greatest friend that you have on this planet, brother, no matter who it may be, the greatest friend you have on this planet is the friend or the person that will tell you the truth about situations. There's enough people, everybody will lie to you because they want something from you. I never met somebody that told somebody the truth that ever wanted anything from because there's no sham in the truth. There's no angle in the truth. 
The only aspect of the truth is that God has called us to peace. And that's a good angle. That's a good angle. Now, he comes down here and he says, in life, when you start dealing with people, no two problems are going to be the same. No two people will require the same exact principles. You have to be able, like a lawyer that deals with different cases, every case is different. The process of learning how to use all of this and to take the principles is basically you learn that by getting the biblical principles down, building your own principle library, having in a notebook someplace or in your Bible by this time, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90, 100, 200 principles that dictate how you deal with scenarios in your own life first than to somebody else. And of course, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, you accomplish this by reason of use. And it, ex- it exercises your spiritual, uh, your senses. It exercises you and gives you the ability to discern both good and evil. I always thought it was interesting that that verse doesn't say it to discern between good and evil. It doesn't say that. It says gives you the ability to discern good and evil. You understand them both because in the contrast of the two is the reality. And so it's an incredible concept that this is why I encourage you to get involved with people. Why I encourage you to disciple somebody. Why I encourage you to get into uh, the, one of the prayer groups, to take a prayer group. Why I encourage you to start working with people on whatever level, the lowest level, and then moving your way up. There's nothing that answer, exercises your senses more and gives you spiritual discernment. I, I don't know what, what anything else does than taking what you have, what you've taken internally, and then put it out to other people. I told them, Thursday night or maybe it was yesterday morning in the prayer group, I said, it's just like driver's ed. You know, it's a thing where you can take all the driver's ed classes you want, but until you get behind the wheel, put the key in the ignition, turn it on, put it in drive and start to drive, nothing really changes. And you can get all the Bible knowledge you want. You can have a Bible full of notes, but until you change about you first inwardly, and then you let God take what you have and you get involved with somebody else. But you've got to do it by the book. Nothing really changes. That's the key. Now, last week in our recap, let's look at verse 10 here a second. And we'll kick through here very quickly. Verse 10 says, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. Let not the wife depart from her husband. We looked at this last week. The wife's told not to depart from her husband. We talked about that. We also talked about how that the, there's no mention of the man departing from the wife. And the reason for that is is because God never intended for the man ever to leave because in the type, he's Christ, and Christ never leaves his bride. I may leave Christ, but Christ will never leave me. We put that back into the concept of the model that nobody really understands today, but we saw how that works. And we know that in a perfect world, uh, this is the way it should run. But we don't live in a perfect world. And we have a lot of bad definitions. We have women who are the weaker vessel, who get their spirits, their emotions crushed because they're not, those needs are not met. And we know what happens. So in verse 10, he says, uh, he says uh, but I the Lord, uh, let not the wife depart from her husband. But then in verse 11, he reverses it and he says, but if she depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. We talked about how that this is the next one, which is a biblical separation. 
sometimes in a situation, uh, the marriage gets so bad, it gets so volatile, there's nothing that can be accomplished. It's went too long, too bad, and if somebody does not get in and try to work through it, it's going to self-destruct itself. Many times, by the time I get to them, they're already dead, and there's nothing I can't breathe life back into a dead person. But the Bible says if she departs, she stays single and not to get hooked up with somebody else uh, to give it a chance to reconcile. And, or if she can't reconcile, if it's impossible, then she doesn't get hooked up in another rebound relationship till she solves the problems or he solves the problems that they have that led them to what it was. And everybody's got issues. And getting into another relationship before you've solved the problems that you have in your own personal life that broke down the last one, it's just going to lead to multiple breakdown in relationships and possibly uh, multiple divorces. And this is what happens. I told you how all this needs to be done within the structure of the New Testament local church. Why? Because God has called us to peace. The church's job is to reconcile. The church's job when they are members of a church is to get in the middle of the thing, hold each person accountable, get the biblical principles in there, and try to get the thing worked out the way the Bible says it needs to be worked out. Now, maybe it can't be worked out, but you got to start somewhere, and you got to take it as you can. Over the years, I've seen so many of these where uh, the church is not involved. It's not under the structure. Two people separate because they can't get along and they decide they're going to get a divorce, which may or may not be the case, but many times they do. And what happens is, is one or the other will get hooked up right back into another relationship again, and it just causes all kinds of problems. It's just because it just, it does, does. The games God's people play, uh, I mean, it's a thing. Well, I don't know how many times I've, I've dealt with after the fact where when a person's got remarried, that they told the person they were dating or marrying uh, that their reason why their marriage was bad was because of their last wife or their last husband. And the person they're courting or trying to get into a relationship with actually believes them. They actually think, well, this person, boy, hey, she's wonderful. She's beautiful. He's the most gorgeous guy I ever met in my life. He does everything. He opens the door. Yeah, and after you're married, they'll slam your fingers in it. So what's your point? <laughs> Don't you know Aren't you not smart enough to know that when somebody wants something, they'll put on their best face? Don't you know that if he, Joe Slob is going to look like the knight in shining armor, and then once he gets you, he's going to go back to Joe Slob? It's a thing where you got to know that. That's human nature. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. We all do that. You know how I know that? Because you all look better here than you did when you got up this morning. You don't want me to see what you really look like. Well, if some of you women were forced to come to church the way you got out of bed this morning, I mean, put some clothes on, but come to church, not fix your hair, not put your makeup on, well, you'd have a bag over your head. We'd have a who's in the bag contest this morning. And guys the same way. The idea of guys getting their hair done today. Get it cut. Guy said, I'm going to get my hair done. Get it cut. Well, get your hair done. Knew a guy one time, he says, I like, get my eyebrows waxed. Don't touch me, man. I go out there, Jamie cuts my hair. She said, Dad, let me wax your eyebrows. I said, get away from me. You ain't going to put wax on my eyebrows. 
My luck, you'd have that stuff on my eyes, be ripping it off one of my deacons, walk down the thing and leave the church. <laughs> you got to know that. You got to know those things. You know, a, a woman separates from her husband and many times, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's unfixable. Oh, they get separated from whatever. And, and then you get a real issue. I had a lady one time years ago, you know, it, 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 human nature. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. She says, I, I, I said, look, I said, hey, look, we got an issue here. You're, you're, you know, I know you're separated from your husband and he's, a, he's an idiot. But, and, I, and I know we've tried to work this thing out. It's not possible. But I said, hey, man, you're, you're, you're dating this guy and you're still married. She says, oh, human nature. She says, oh, oh, no, 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 we're not dating. I said, what do you mean you're not dating? I saw you guys out at a, she says, well, we're pre-dating. I said, okay, well, then that makes me feel better. You're not really sinning. You're just pre-sinning. Human is stupid. Human nature will do whatever it takes to justify its action. And we don't like reality church, but we like reality TV. Listen, if you don't follow the book, you will do over and over what has gotten you in the situation you're in. And that is follow your feelings. People with relationship issues, people with sin issues, and we all have sin issues. I'm talking about repetitive sin issues. You know what you got to do? You got to break that cycle. I watch it in families. I watch this guy raise these kids. These kids, this guy's bad. These kids are worse. They grow up. They have kids. They're worse than the last one and worse than the first one. And the generational cycle just keeps going, producing kids that don't do anything for God, hate God, and they get worse as the time goes on. How do you fix that? Somebody, somebody, some dad, some mom, somebody has got to stand up and break the cycle and say, we're not going to do that anymore. Until that happens, it doesn't, doesn't change. Doesn't change. I mean, one of the things that never ceases to amaze me about God's people, I've seen this all my life. I just stand in awe of it sometimes. I mean, their life is an absolute disaster. They've got bad relationships, lost marriage, lost kids, nothing goes right for them. They've lost their job, lost their house, they've lost everything they got. Uh, they got everything going downside for them. I mean, it, it just, it just everything. And it's all because of bad choices. It's all because of bad decisions, bad definitions. It's all based on they've operated on their emotions and their flesh and never put one principle of the Word of God in their lives. And they ask for help. So you, what do you do? God has not called us, to, called us to peace. So you go, you, you give them the help, you start working with them, and what do they do? They go right back to telling you what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. Well, listen, kid, if you make such good choices in life, what do you need me for? The reason why you need a church in your life is to get a dose of reality as the decisions that you've made have to stop. You've got to start making them right. I had a couple in our church, they're gone. You don't even know who they are. Don't even think you know who they are because they were so minuscule when they came in. They only came for a short time. But I've known them for years. And this wife's got some serious emotional problems. I mean, she really does. I, she, bless her heart. Uh, my heart goes out to her, but she's got some really problems, really emotional, deep emotional problems. And the husband's got his own issues. His biggest issue is he's a wimp. I don't know what else to tell you. Nice guy, but a wimp. He can't control his wife. And I'm not sure you'd want to control her. But anyway, you can't control her. And it's a situation where my heart goes out to him. You know, and she told me the story how that, you know, Oliver, you know, and I, I knew the story because I've known him for years. 
So I say, hey, look, we'll help you. So I took two or three of my choicest ladies, put them with this gal. You know, and then, and so about six or eight weeks into this, this girl calls me, the woman calls me, and she says, I don't like so-and-so. And I said, well, you know what? I don't know what to tell you. I mean, she'll do you a good job. Well, I just don't, I, she doesn't relate to where I'm at. I said, okay. I said, she said, I don't want to meet with her anymore. I said, okay. So I talked to my person. I said, this is not your deal. This is what it is. Let's just play this thing out. So I got her somebody else. Two, three months later, another phone call. I don't like this one. She didn't understand where I'm at at all. I said, okay. She's really a good one. She worked with a lot of people. No, nah, nah, she, she doesn't relate to me. Okay, 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 okay. So I told this person, hey, it's a learning experience. You know what? If you want to understand what the ministry is, get a weekend pass to the zoo. It'll help you figure it all out. Okay, no problem. So I got her another person. Six weeks later, three months later, I don't know what it was. I don't want this person to disciple me. It just, it just, she's not fitting in where I'm at. She doesn't even understand where I'm coming from. I said, well, okay. This time her husband's mad. He's not mad at her. He's mad at us. So they call for a meeting. And I know what's going to happen. They're mad now they're going to leave the church. <sighs> Thank God. <clears throat> <clears throat> so they come over. And I knew I was in trouble because she was... She wanted to help in ministry. You know me. I'll let you do anything as long as you're not going to kill somebody. So I had all this stuff that I was trying to get typed out and everything. She liked to type. I said, good. Give her, some, give her something to do. Get her mind off herself because this woman's got some baggage, okay? So but I know I'm in trouble because I'm looking out my little windows on the side of the door there, and I see him carrying boxes of stuff, and I know what that is. <laughs> They're bringing my stuff back. So I'm prepared for the worst, you know? I'm thinking maybe it's money, but probably not. <clears throat> maybe they won the lottery and they're going to bring the title. Probably, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. So we go upstairs in my office, and it's, you could tell. I mean, I've been in funeral homes where there's been a sweeter spirit. <clears throat> and and I'm and I'm I'm sitting there, and he's I can see he's visibly shaken. And and I, I'm saying, and he said, well, he says I just feel like we've been betrayed. And I said, okay, I'm really sorry. How, how we betrayed you? And he said, my wife needs help. And my, my flesh is getting in it just a little bit now. You know, I, you, know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, what would Jesus do? Jesus would call down lightning and kill them both. I don't have that ability. Uh, have you ever met my dog, buddy? Go on downstairs and say hi to him. You know? So I'm sitting there, and I'm, and I'm, I'm seething inside. Because I know what this issue is. I know what this problem is. She does not want to do what the Bible says. I know the ladies I put with her, the best ladies I have. I said, I don't have any better ladies than this. If this lady can't do it, and she's not had one, she's now had three or four. She doesn't like any of them. She keeps jumping. You know why she keeps going? Because she doesn't want to hear what they're telling her. She wants to work through my church to find somebody to tell her what she wants to hear. Now, in our church, that's probably a rough thing for you to find. Unless you get some new person that doesn't know anything, but that's kind of a tough thing to find in this church if you've been around for a while because everybody offers off the same page. I, some of you are worse than I am. 
I mean, uh, you, I, I, you know, so I, I and, I, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm really seething. I, I want to say something. And, and they said, so we're going to leave the church. And I said, well, I really hate to see that. I said, no, I, I, what are you talking about? I was, at this point, I'm trying to, God has called us to peace, man. What's the matter with you? But I'm going to get my in. And I said, well, I really hate to see that. But I said, I think that's probably the best thing for you. And she looks at me and she says, oh, why is that? And I said, because I'm out of people. <laughs> I said, you've had everybody I got. I said, I don't have anybody left. You, you wore them all out. You, I mean, they're all, they're, you know what? But she did not want to do. And this is the problem you find. This is the problem you find. It never ceased to amaze me. People will come in with problems, got mega problems, but then they want to take charge and they want to tell you, well, if you know how to fix it, why are you even asking me? Why don't you like reality church? I think it's a good thing. All right, now look at verse 12. Now here it comes. But to the rest speak I and not the Lord, if any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. All right, this is rule number five. Now, notice this is based on verse 12, the first part, the rest I speak, not the Lord. This is stuff added to the church that was not given in the Old Testament that is given to the church. So he tells you that, but the rest speak I, not the Lord. In other words, there's no Old Testament commandment on this. This is something given to the church under New Testament revelation under grace. Now, in this case, you have a saved man married to an unsaved woman. And uh, that in itself, a saved person marrying an unsaved person is a violation of biblical principles. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says, What? Know ye not your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you. You have a God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. You don't have a right to marry whoever you just want to marry. For you are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God's. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through uh, 16 takes it a little farther. There it says, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's pretty clear, isn't it? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness, and what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, or what agreement uh, hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of living God, and God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and they will be, uh, be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, want to learn cause and effect? Here it is. Five things here that your marriage is, or should be. A marriage should be fellowship. A marriage should be a communion. A marriage should be a concord. A marriage should be an agreement. And a marriage should be a part. In other words, two parts making a whole. You know, I gave you a while back, a couple of weeks ago, one of the great principles, uh, how that men and women have three basic needs. And those needs are the same, but they're not met the same. Every woman and every man has physical needs, emotional needs, and spiritual needs. And I, we took a long time, and I showed you that, and this is the downfall of marriage when men and women don't know how to meet these needs. But I'll tell you something else. Based on these five things right here, marriage in a concept, a biblical marriage, is three things in God's sight. This is different than the needs. This is what a marriage is in God's sight. A marriage has to be three things. It has to be lordship. 
It has to be fellowship, and it has to be relationship. Lordship, you've got to have a personal one-on-one relationship with God because your marriage will only be as strong together as your individual relationship is with God. You don't have that, you're not fixing anything. Lordship, right lordship, leads to the right fellowship. Fellowship between you and God, fellowship between you and your mate. Right lordship, right fellowship, means right relationship. And your marriage now is biblical. Doesn't mean you won't have problems problem when you have issues, but it means you wear with all just like a church. There's no perfect church. This church is not perfect. But within this church, we have the ability, because God has called us to peace, to solve any problem that comes up. The problem is some people don't want to solve their problems. I can't help that. And marriages, some people don't want to solve their marriage problem. I can't help that. But this is what you got. And now, but it happens all the time. And again, this is not a, a judgment on anybody. I'm teaching you so you understand. I mean, how many times have, we, have I seen in my life, you got a guy or a gal who's the saved, but they get out of fellowship. And then they get hooked up with an unsaved guy or unsaved person, and they get married. Later, they get right with God, and now what do they do? Now they realize that what they did was wrong. They made a bad choice, but what are they supposed to do? You're supposed now to go divorce that person because you're now right with God and they're unsaved? I don't think so. Then you have the situation where you have, where sometimes they're both unsaved. And a man will get saved or the woman will get saved uh, and then the other person remains unsaved. What do you do with that? Now that you were both unsaved and one of the other got saved and the other person is unsaved, do you leave them now and say, well, I can't be married to you anymore because the Bible says I'm not to be unequally yoked and, and uh, so I'm going to divorce you? No. Those principles were given for you to do before you got married, not after you got married. So in a perfect world, this is supposed to work, but we don't live in a perfect world. So... This is where you got to come back and understand what he's saying. Now, rule number six, verse 13. Here we reverse the situation. And the woman which hath a husband, that believeth not. Now, the other one was reversed, you see. We had a, a man who had a wife that didn't believe. Now we got a husband that believeth, but not the wife. If she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. Now, it's the same deal, you see. So verse five, verse six basically say, Stay with your unsaved mate if that's what you find yourself in, as you two agree and you can get along, uh, even though, you know, if she's pleased to dwell with you, stay with them. Why? Why is that? This is a great concept I'm about to give you. I don't care what situation you're in. I don't care what situation you find yourself in. God will always make a way for you to deal with the circumstances you're in. He'll always make a way for you to get out of it, fix it, and get the honor and glory to him. He'll always do that, every situation. Sometimes because there's been a lot of time passed, it's not an easy thing, but he will do it. He will do it. And the reason why he says stay with your unsaved partner is because, very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, you're now the key to winning them to Christ. You give me any situation. You give me any person, I don't care who, you give me a man or a wife and one of them gets saved, one of them, any situation where you got one saved and one lost, if I can get one or the other to get into the Bible, change their life, start doing what's right, 
in time, almost 100% of the time, that unsaved person will get saved. You know why? Because God takes, in that situation, either way, God takes the saved person, he reaches down through that saved person's life. When they do what's right, the only avenue he has is to reach down through the saved person and reach out to the lost person and win them to Christ. You give me a, a husband or a wife in that kind of scenario who will do what's right, balance it out, use the Bible, get their own life going, and I guarantee you that person will get saved. We have an example. They're not here today, and I'm kind of glad they're not. I can use them and not embarrass them. But uh, Eve and her husband. Eve came to church and got saved. Her husband wasn't saved. Eve is is a little typical cut a little higher than everybody else, and she went out of here. There was, I mean, she told everybody. I think she rented that big Goodyear blimp. I'm saved now. My name is Eve. Come to church, you know. <laughs> Praise the Lord. God bless her. It wasn't, what, two weeks later, her husband came, and then he got saved. It, it, it's just the way it works. I don't care what's, listen to me. I don't care what your circumstances are. I don't care that you've made a mistake and got yourself in a situation maybe you shouldn't have. Who of us here hasn't done that? My point is, God will take you where you're at, and if you will do what's right in this given scenario, stay with that lost person, recognize that you are the key to winning them, and then let God change you, reach down through you, you'll win that partner. Now, it's a lot easier when the guy gets saved and he has an unsaved wife. It can be a little more complicated when it's reversed, but... Not a big deal. The big deal is finding people who do what's right because God will always work through the saved person in any circumstance. I don't know how many times in my life and my ministry I've had people, uh, couples, that the girl was saved or vice versa, and it took some time. It took a process of things, but in time, that person got saved if the one that's saved stays faithful with it. Now look at verse 14. Here comes another one. The woman, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband, else were your children unclean, but now they are holy. All right, now another great word shows up here in relationship to your marriage that we haven't seen before. It's the word sanctified. Sanctified. That word means to be set apart from something to something. You see, when you got saved, God sanctified you. What do you mean? He sets you apart from the world. Hence, the doctrine of sanctification. That's what 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 2 Corinthians 7, 14 and 16 is all about, the world. But now we see that God not only sanctified you as an individual, but when you get married, God sets your marriage apart and sanctifies your marriage for something that he wants you to do as a couple. We have not seen that before. So I want you to understand that. And then along with that comes the next great concept that you need to understand it. And this is the fact that God does not recognize the marriage of two unsaved people. That's a very important thing that you understand. Marriage is something that illustrates Christ in a church that two unsaved people could never have any kind of spiritual union with God. They may go to a church, they may go through with a service, but I don't mean to be blunt today, but as far as God's concerned, two unsaved people getting married, it's just like barnyard animals mating. God does not see anything in it. 
in any way, shape, or form that relates back to his concept of marriage because his concept of marriage is about God's son and God's bride, which neither are part of. And that's why he talks about uh, being unequally yoked. Now, that's a good phrase. And here's a case where we talked about that, that unweekly yoke means one married, uh, lost, and one married. What uh, one saved. Unequal. They're unequal because one is in Christ, the other one is not. That's why you go back in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10, you'll find that under the law, it was a violation of the Old Testament law that when a man plowed the field, that he yoked up an ox and an ass. They could not plow together. You know why? Because an ox is a picture of a saved man in the Bible, and the ass is a picture of an unsaved man in the Bible. So there again, all the way back in the Old Testament under the law, we see the foreshadowing of what the New Testament was going to be, that it's a violation for a man to plow, which is what you do in ministry. You plow the fields. You sow uh, in the morning, sowing in the evening, sowing, bringing in the sheaves. You plow the field for Jesus Christ with your mate equally yoked. So when you have an ass and an, and, a, and an ox, they're unequal in the Old Testament because of what they represent. And that's why it's a violation of the law because he says you cannot be unequally yoked. Then you find in Numbers chapter 19, verse 13, another great concept. It talks about how that the nation of Israel could not touch dead people. They could not be in the presence of dead people. If they touched a dead person, they had to be outside the camp for a couple of days to get clean and go to the priest. Why? Because on dead people in the Old Testament are picture, physical dead people, or a picture of spiritually dead people in the New Testament who are dead in trespasses of sin. And a saved Jew, or Jew in the Old Testament, could not touch a dead person. And the reason for that is because it pictures that a saved person should not be touching dead people in Christ without Christ. That's the concept. And that's why he says, what fellowship has righteousness? There's a saved person without righteousness. What communion, that's togetherness, has light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Belial. Belial is the Old Testament name for the devil. What part has he that believeth, there's the saved person, with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God, there's a saved person, with idols? You see, there's nothing that connects. So as far as two unsaved people are concerned, God doesn't recognize the marriage. Now you understand the importance of why a saved person should not marry an unsaved person. But it happens. And when it does happen, when it does happen, then God recognizes the marriage. He sanctifies the marriage. Even though it's a violation of what he wanted, he does it. Not because you now and your unsaved spouse can go out and serve God together, no, but for the children's sake, else they would be considered in God's sight like un- illegitimate, bastard children, if we, we may use the word. And of course, now, let me explain this. This has nothing to do with your children's salvation. I know there's a lot of heresy out there right now. I know one guy teaches that if you're lost and your kid die, baby dies, 
and you're and you're, an un, you're in an unsaved marriage situation, and your baby you have a baby, and that baby gets to be two or three, and God forbid dies, that that baby goes to hell. I know another guy down in the south, uh, in uh, Peculiar, someplace out there, that he teaches this. And then they wonder why he has a church of six people and four of them his family. <laughs> he teaches that if the rapture comes and your children are on the age of accountability, that you go in the rapture and your little kids stay and go through the tribulation period. Now, how do you build a church on that? If I thought that was true in the Bible, you never hear that out of my mouth. Can you imagine trying to build a church with a young couple saying, you know what, boy, I hope the tribulation doesn't come until that kid gets saved. Why? Because he's going to go through the tribulation. Well, you mean God's going to take my kid and leave him down here and we're going to go up to heaven? Yep. Would you go to a church like that? I'd like to preach the funeral of a, of a little baby that just died and the mom and dad's unsaved. You probably got the greatest opportunity to reach out to them and win them to Christ at that terrible time in their life and you're going to tell them that their baby's lost because they're lost? <laughs> You're an idiot, man. I'll tell you what. You got to be taken out and shot. This has nothing to do with salvation. Let me just make a blanket statement. I don't know what the age of accountability is. It's different with every kid. I mean, uh, some kids get saved when they're nine. There's some of you here that are in your 30s. That I don't think you've hit the age of accountability yet. So, I mean, it's, it, it, everybody's different. Nobody's the same. But I will tell you this. That baby has got no sin imputed to them before they hit that age of accountability. If a baby dies, they go to heaven just like a heartbeat. I don't care what it is. There's no parameters given to it. This is not talking about their soul. This here, your children would be unclean, doesn't mean they're going to die and go to hell. It means the context, how God is looking at marriage as being legitimate or illegitimate. Nothing about the kid's soul. I just thought this was the great... You know, whatever heresy you get linked up to, no matter how good it looks, there's always some place that the Bible just breaks your back. You know, this thing about Calvinism, the greatest downfall of Calvinism is this concept right here. You know what you got to believe if you're a Calvinist? You can't say that all babies are under the blood before they hit the age of accountability. Because if that baby was chosen before the foundation of the world, being under the blood of Christ has nothing to do with it. He doesn't put them under the blood. He doesn't put them on. He doesn't choose them under the blood and then unchoose them after they hit the accountability. If you're a Calvinist, you got to believe that when a baby dies, you got to roll the dice. Was that baby chosen or not? Try to tell that to a family in a little casket. Oh, I'm so sorry for you. Well, tell me, can you give me anything at all? Can you, we're, my little baby, we loved him. We want, we're going to see him in heaven. Uh, and the father get up there and say, well, you know what? Tears run down his face. Well, I just have to bury my little baby. We wanted a baby so long and he died today. But we know, we know that we're going to see him in heaven. Amen. Yeah, praise the Lord. We know that we're going to be with him. And right now, God just come down and took a little flower out of our garden and put it in his garden. Well, we're going to see him again. And then the pastor gets up and says, well, that's not necessarily true. You're out of your mind. See how stupid something is when you get out of the Bible? That Bible makes it clear. When a baby dies, there's no sin imputed to him when there was no knowledge. Oh, my God, back in the Old Testament when God killed everybody and made them wander for 40 years, you know what he said? He said, your little ones get go into the land because they did not know right and wrong in the day their parents did. How do you miss that? Oh, I know how you miss it. You're stupid. Pray about it. You'll get it. 
Now, what I'm trying to say is this. I don't care what situation you find yourself in today. I didn't say all this to make you feel bad if you find yourself in this scenario. That's not my purpose at all. But my purpose was to help you understand that God has called us to peace. God's called us to peace. And in doing that, the thing that if you ever grasp this principle, the thing that will make you love God more than anything else on this planet is the fact that when you understand the greatest concept of God is God always covers our bases when we fail. I think the number one thing I love about God more than anything else, that my failures, even though I may have to pay the consequences for it, my failures, God always makes a way. That's what he does. You know why? Because God follows his own principles. He's called us to peace. He may have to come down and take you to the woodshed. He may have to make you through some tough times because there's physical consequences with everything. But I'm telling you, God always covers us our weaknesses, doesn't he? You know why he does? Figured it out yet? I'll tell you why. Because he follows his own principles. I guess he just shows us that he honors us as the weaker vessel when we don't honor him. I mean, where do you go? Adam and Eve. God put them down in a perfect garden, put them in a perfect place, gave them everything. Didn't have to work. Perfect weather, everything. Adam and Eve were the two happiest people in the world. When, Ad, when Eve looked at Adam, she says, Adam, do you love me more than anybody else? She says, honey, I love you more than anybody else in the whole world. She says, we are the only two in the whole world, Adam. They had everything. I mean, that God met, met with them. Do you ever have a friend that was a close friend? And little kids have this problem all the time when they get to school because friends change. You ever notice how a kid will have friends or you'll have friends and suddenly something will happen and they don't want to be your friend anymore? You'll go up and talk to them and you say, come to church, say, hey, how you doing? You'll get this. You just say, hey, how you doing? I'm talking to you. They don't want to talk to you anymore. Doesn't that cut you in your heart? Doesn't it bother you when your little kids come home and you say, well, what are you crying for, honey? Well, Susie was my friend, and now she doesn't want to be my friend no more. Well, you know, what do you do? How do you explain to a nine-year-old that Susie's demon-possessed and you don't even want to be with her? How do you explain that to a nine-year-old? I mean, where do you get that from? I mean, how, how do you, those things, you got to sit down and you got to say, well, but she's crying. Well, I wanted my Susie to be my friend. Well, you know, Susie's dad's a drug dealer. You don't want to have her as a friend, you know. Think of anything, you know. It's tough. I wonder, I wonder how God felt. I wonder how God felt. He met with Adam and Eve in the garden. They had fellowship together. He walked them, watched down in those golden sunsets, hand in hand, God walking with them. And God let Adam name everything, and he brought, give him the woman and all the things, and he didn't have to work, and the food was right there, and everything he had, and they had fellowship together. I wonder how God felt the day that he came down to that garden, and they were hiding from him. I wonder how he feels the day you wake up, me and you hide from him. I wonder what was in God's heart when he walked through that garden. And the animals were still there. It was still a beautiful place. But the desire of God's heart was running from him. And God cries out, Adam, where art thou? It's like God didn't know where he was. God knew exactly what fig tree he was hiding under. That's another great principle, isn't it? 
God knew where he was, just like God knows where you're at today. But sometimes God will ask you, even when he knows where you're at, because God wants to see if you're really honest and you'll really tell him where you're at. He knew where Adam was. Why, he could have had four angels come down there and flush him out of there like a covey of quail, and God would have <laughs> got Adam. <laughs> Giddy, flush her out of there. He knew where he was. You know what he did? Bible says he made him garments of salvation. You know why? Because God always covers our weakness. And I don't care what situation you're in today, how weak you were, how dumb you were when you made it. The Bible says that the greatest characteristic of God is he covers our weakness. And when Adam brought the world into sin and transgression passed upon all men through Adam, God made him garments of salvation. I look down there and I think of Abraham. God said, Abraham, you're going to be my, you're going to be my nation. Out of your loins is going to come the great nation. I'm going to call you out of the Ur of Chaldees, and I want you to go. But Adam, or but Abraham, you've got to forsake everything. You've got to leave everything behind because I'm going to sanctify you and set you apart. Abraham said, that sounds good, Lord. Left Ur, didn't obey God, and took Lot with him. Anybody that knows the story know that Lot was a thorn in everybody's side. He was the cause. He was a fly in the ointment. He caused problems all the way through the thing, all because Abraham disobeyed what God directly told him. But you know what God did? All through the book of Genesis, he makes a way around the difficulties, doesn't he? God always covers us, our weaknesses. He always does. I think of the story of when the promised seed was coming with Sarah and Hagar. Sarah couldn't, couldn't wait. She, she was barren, and she wanted to have a child because it meant so much to her. And it meant so much to Abraham. And she knew how he wanted a child. So like most things, she can't wait on God. So we get in it and fix it ourselves. So she takes her handmaid, Hagar, and gives it to Abraham. And he produces Ishmael. Ishmael becomes a thorn in Israel's side even to this day. Do you know what? The problem with the Muslims over there in the West Bank and Jerusalem right now today, you can put it all to CBS and NBC aside, boy. It all goes back to Genesis chapter 17, 18, and 19 where Hagar produced Ishmael. Ishmael was the Arabian. He's the Muslim. When the Muslim faith decides who they're going to take over the Jews, they run their family right back to Abraham through Ishmael. But you know what God did? God covered the bases. God made sure that he, they still got the land. I think of Moses. I think of Moses when he went out there and, and, and God, and people were thirsty in the wilderness of sin and they didn't have anything to drink. And about... Fifteen years earlier, God had had him go out and take a big old stick that he had brought the plague down in Egypt, and he stuck that rock, and that water came out, and the people drank. Now they're in a similar situation. Some 15 years later, this time he doesn't have the rod of judgment. He has Aaron's priestly rod, and this time God gives him instructions, and he says, no, no, you don't smack the rock this time. You just tell the rock, speak to the rock, and it'll bring forth water. And I look at that story and I think I see myself so many times how I've disobeyed what God said. You see, the type in there is the fact that the first time that rock was smoten or hit, it was with the rod of judgment because that rock was a type of Jesus Christ. And the first time Moses was told to strike the rock, it's a picture of Christ being crucified. Second time, some 15 years later, he doesn't have the rod of judgment now. He has Aaron's rod, which is the priestly rod. And he's supposed to speak to the rock because it shows that you and I now have access to God. We don't have to crucify Jesus Christ to get access to him anymore. We just speak to him now because he was crucified back here. See the type? But Moses failed, didn't he? 
Moses is human. He's angry at the people because they're complaining about everything and his anger gets control of him and he gets his motions control and he takes that rod of Aaron and he walks over instead of speaking to that rock, he smites the rock. He failed God, didn't he? Yes, he did. But you know what? The water came out anyhow. God always covers our weaknesses. Always covers our weaknesses. I think of David and Bathsheba. Here's a man that violated the two Old Testament principles which there's no sacrifice for. By all rights, he failed God in every way, shape, or form. And yet, God did what? He gives him the sure mercies of David. You see, it doesn't matter what situation you find yourself in today. It doesn't matter. God will always take care of the person or persons who wants to do what's right. It doesn't matter. God doesn't look back and see all the things that we did and kind of keep score against us. He doesn't do it that way. We do it that way. He doesn't do it that way. No, no. God has called us to peace. And one of the great concepts of God that you'll learn that I want to close out with this morning is this right here. Every one of those people failed God. The list is endless in the Bible. And yet God keeps coming through. Because the greatest characteristic of God for you and for me is he'll come through in our failures. He'll take you where you're at no matter what you've done. But I got to tell you, each one of these stories had some physical consequences with it, didn't it? David lost all four of his boys. Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael is Israel's enemy to this day. Moses didn't get into the promised land because he disobeyed God. You see, God may give the blessings, but I'm telling you, the more mistakes you and I make till we get the Bible in our lives and start doing what's right, the more consequences we have to deal with. Sin never leaves a man or a woman any better than it finds them. And God may make a way for you, but I'm not saying he's going to take away the alimony checks. I'm not going to say he's going to take away this or he's going to take away that. Those are consequences. But I am telling you, I don't matter what situation you find yourself in today. If you want to get into the Bible and quit playing games God will take you where you're at. These things in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 are written to the church so that a body of Christ can still function even though it fails. He is. You know what he does? He does what I tell you all the time we ought to do because he is the epitome of Romans 15.1. Romans 15.1 says, Ye that are strong ought to bear the infirmity of the weak. You know what God does? He bears my infirmity because I'm weak. And he'll bear your infirmity and your weakness if you'll let him. You're not a bad person. We don't have any bad people in this church. I don't even know all you visitors or the visitors the last whatever, but you're not bad people. You, bad people don't even come to places like this. But I am telling you that God will take you where you're at and God will help you. He'll give you what you need. He'll give you because God's business is being strong for us that are weak. He comes through when we fail. Not saying there will be some consequences, but he'll even work you through those. He won't take them away necessarily, but he will walk you through them. Because like the great husband that he is and the great model for us, he'll never desert his bride. He'll never depart from the weaker vessel because he knows that he has her strength. And he knows that he needs to be the strong one in that relationship. And there lies the concept and the breakdown of marriage. You see, 
The real issue is God will always be, God will always be there to fix whatever we break. My advice to you is don't break too much for too long before you go to get it fixed. But you know what the real issue is? I see it all the time. We just really don't want to fix it. We don't want to give up control. We don't want to fix about us what needs to be fixed to get where we need to get. Because all of our life, it's been about us and what we want. We may give lip service to God or how much we love him, but we don't love him near as much as we love ourselves. And there becomes the problem. Every head bowed and every eye closed.